I was thinking as the birds are making their way back and forth, just kind of wondering if possibly the church at Corinth met in a barn. Possibly they had birds. It would explain why in 1 Corinthians, uh, I believe it's 11, Paul tells the women to pray with their heads covered. I don't know. Just a thought. A little, little theology there for you. <laughs> Genesis chapter 21, starting in verse 1. <clears throat> oh, you know what? Before we read that, I have to, I have to point something out to you. I forgot about this. Uh, on the back table, we get this newsletter from uh, Phil and Jane Jones, who are missionaries in Costa Rica. It's called Keeping Up with the Joneses. And uh, uh, anyway, um, it's got some pictures on it and some stuff that's going on with them. Cheryl copied it off, and, and there are copies. Where are they, Cheryl, on the back back table? So if you'd like to just grab one and, and see what's going on and, and be updated every time one of these comes in, we'll we'll make sure and copy it off. It also has their uh, address and their email address there, which would be really cool if you grab one of these and drop them a line and just say we're praying for you. You know, to be doing what they're doing, that kind of encouragement is is huge. So those are in the back for you. Genesis 21, starting in verse 1. And then the Lord took note of Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. So Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age, at the appointed time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, who Sarah bore to him, Isaac. And then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Now Abraham was 100 years old, and his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me, and everyone who hears will laugh with me, for Isaac's name means laughter, the whole name. And Sarah and Abraham, they're laughing, they're in hilarity, they're they're joyful, they're overflowing, they have a child, even in their old age. Verse 7, it says, that Sarah said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. One hundred-year-old Abraham is now the daddy of laughter, Isaac. The child who was promised. And ninety-year-old Sarah is now the joyful mother, nursing the child. Amazing. There's laughter in the family because of this bouncing baby boy. The joyful laughter of old parents who shouldn't be old parents. But there's another kind of laughter in the house. On this particular day, verse 8 tells us the child grew and was weaned and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. Now on that day, if you can imagine, the family's all around. It's like a reunion. There's a great feast. There is laughter everywhere. People are so amazed. They're excited. He's weaned, which means at this point, Isaac's two, three years old. And everybody is just amazed. There's laughter everywhere. But not all the laughter was good. Not all the laughter going on was the kind of laughter that you would hope for. There's another kind of laughter in the house of Abraham. The mocking, derisive, bullish laughter of another son of Abraham. Another son who is already, even at this early stage, setting himself against the promised child Isaac. And so the trouble between Jew and Arab begins. Fathers, we continue in the study this morning. I pray for wisdom and insight and understanding that you would help us to see and, and plumb some of the depths of these scriptures so that we, like Abraham, can act in faith. 
Be our teacher this morning, Holy Spirit. We invite you to do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, starting in verse 9, it tells us that Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, mocking. Now that word mock there in verse 9, it's the Hebrew word tashak. He was tashaking. It was tashaking behavior on the part of, of Ishmael there. He was mocking, making fun, ridiculing this child. Literally it means to make sport of or to have fun at the expense of. Well, if Isaac is two or three years old, Ishmael now would be roughly 16 or 17 years old. The teenager is having fun at the expense of the toddler. Now, you may say, come on. I mean, that wouldn't really happen. A teenager picking on a baby? Have you ever had kids? Put two kids in the same family. It doesn't matter how far apart they are age-wise. Picking on may happen. And is happening here. Ishmael is having fun at the expense of Isaac. And our New Testament commentary refers to this very incident in Galatians 4.29. Only there, Paul does not use the word mock. He uses the word persecute. A very specific word. That Ishmael is persecuting Isaac. So we don't know exactly what was going on there, but we know it wasn't good. We know it was harmful. We know that Mama Sarah sees this going on. And she says, enough of that. I don't want that going on. I want that woman and her child out of my house. Read on. Verse 10. Therefore she said to Abraham, drive out this maid and her son. For the son of this maid shall not be an heir with my son Isaac. And it tells us in verse 11 that the matter distressed Abraham greatly because of his son. Because of which son? Because of Ishmael. Abraham was distressed. Remember, if Ishmael is 16, 17 years old, Abraham has lived his last 16, 17 years with this boy. He has raised Ishmael. And though it's wonderful to have little two, three-year-old Isaac there in the house, great, this is fantastic, a new little baby, he still has another son. A son who he raised, a son whom he loves. And his wife now is saying, I want him out. Drive him out. Him and his mother, they have no place in this family. Now we know that Sarah drove Hagar out once before. You may recall that. And Hagar ran to the, actually she didn't drive her out. And Hagar ran because Sarah was persecuting her. And God sent Hagar back. Abraham loved Ishmael. Genesis 17:18. I'll just read this to you tells us, going back a few chapters, that Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. But God said, No, Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. You ever wonder why it was that God did that? I mean, God had a plan, sure, and man messed up. Abraham and Sarah messed up, sure. But couldn't he have just used Ishmael? Couldn't he have just taken the bad situation and, and, and made it better by just saying, okay, you know what, I know you made a mistake, but I'm still God and I can still work out, even in your mistakes, let's take Ishmael and let's make him the child of promise. But God doesn't do that. And there's a very specific reason, which we will see this morning. You see, it was Isaac who was supposed to be the child of promise. It was Isaac who was God's plan. Sarah is now angry, Abraham is torn, and Ishmael is on his way out the door. Wait a minute. You may say, God saved Hagar and Ishmael before. He won't let this thing happen, will he? 
He's not going to back Sarah up on this, is he? Read on. Verse 12 says, But God said to Abraham, Do not be distressed because of the lad and your maid. Whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her, for, though, for through Isaac your descendants shall be named. Verse 13, And the son of the maid, I, I will make a nation also because he is your descendant. God says, Abraham, listen to your wife. Listen to her. Do what she says. Drive out the maid and her son. This is a tough one. A hard passage of scripture. Our compassionate, graceful, loving God says, yeah, drive her out. My promise is through Isaac. But the story gets even more amazing as you read on. Remember, this father supposedly loves his son. Abraham loves Ishmael. But his wife and his God tell him to send Ishmael away, so he does it. But notice the provisions. Pay close attention to the provisions that he sends out with them. Genesis 21:14. So Abraham rose early in the morning. And he took ten to fifteen servants, several camels, sheep and oxen, bags of gold and wealth, clothing, enough to take care of them for several months, he then packed on, on their uh, donkeys there some tents and some things so that they would... No. Oh, I'm sorry. That's not what it says at all. It says he gave them bread and a skin of water and sent them on their way. Now, Abraham's living in Gerar in the land of the Philistines. It's a rough country. He sends them, literally the Bible says, out into the wilderness. He gave them bread and a skin of water, gave them to Hagar, putting them on her shoulder, and gave her the boy and sent her away. And she departed and wandered about in the wilderness of Beersheba. And it was a tough, hard place to live. Rocky, sandy, dry, barren. And he gives them a skin of water and a loaf of bread. Now, how is Abraham's portfolio looking at this point in his life? How's he doing financially? If you recall, when he made that little trip with Sarah down to Egypt, and she joined Pharaoh's harem, what did he get out of the deal? Lots of stuff. Masses of wealth. You may recall also that in chapter 14, when Abraham goes on this trek after some kings, he takes a small army with him, over 300 men, all servants of his household. Abraham's family is like a small moving township. They're like a little city on wheels. He's got people, he's got servants, he's got stuff. This is a wealthy man. It's not like he didn't have it to give. But he says to Hagar and Ishmael, Here's your skin of water, here's your loaf of bread. Good luck. See you later. Now, as a father myself, I don't think I could do that. Water and, and bread? Bread and water? Wouldn't you think that if Abraham loved Ishmael, if he was really torn up about this, he would at least send him out with some kind of inheritance? Anything? But he doesn't. Bread and water. That's it. Now we're going to find out what happens to these two wanderers on Wednesday night, but for this morning's study, I want us to discern two reasons Abraham did this. I want you to understand two reasons why Abraham would send out his only son, well not his only son, his firstborn son, by the wrong woman, why he would send him out with her mother into the wilderness with bread and water. And the first reason is a historical reason. In fact, I'll give you an historical reason and a practical reason. The historical reason is that it's an indication of Abraham's faith. An indication of Abraham's faith. God promised that Ishmael would father 12 princes. And in Genesis chapter 25, those names are listed. 
He promised, I will grow out of Ishmael. I will make Ishmael a great nation too because he comes from you, Abraham. Not my plan, but I'm going to do it. And Abraham knows that God has Ishmael well in hand. He's learned that lesson the hard way. I mean, that's how Ishmael came along in the first place. Abraham has learned that it's not up to me to help God out. He and Sarah helped God out, which is what produced Ishmael. The mistake, the problem. And so Abraham's learned this over time. I guess I'm not supposed to help God. I guess what I'm supposed to do is believe that God's going to do what he says he is going to do. Well, Abraham is grieved, but he knows that his son is going to be okay. Abraham literally must entrust Ishmael's welfare to the Lord, believing that God's going to do for Ishmael what he said he would do. This is an indication of Abraham's faith. Now, it may seem surprising that the story in Genesis 21 is an act of faith, but Abraham has learned that God knows what he's doing. That God will care for those he says he's going to care for. Clearly this hurts. Abraham is greatly distressed, but he trusts the Lord. And he entrusts Ishmael to God. And so he sends him out with bread and water and nothing else. Because truly Ishmael was in God's hands. Now parents, quick side note. Take note of Abraham's faith here. As we think about our children and raise them. God gives us certain promises. He says in Proverbs 22, verse 6, Train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. We live in a culture, in a world, where it says allow your children to find their own way. Allow them to to discover their own life. And guess what? It don't work. It doesn't work to send a child out and say, Good luck. Hope everything goes well today. Hope you find your way in the world. God tells us, no, train the child up. Ephesians 6.4 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. I memorized that one growing up. Anytime my dad was mad at me, Dad, Ephesians 6.4, don't provoke your child to anger. Which just made him more angry. I provoked him to anger. But Ephesians 6.4 goes on and says, But bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. We have a responsibility as parents. If you are a parent, you have a responsibility. God has placed it in your hands to raise your child in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Not to leave it to chance. Not to just hope, just let it go, well, whatever. Parents, have you entrusted your kids to the Lord? Have you entrusted them, given them completely over to God? You may say, Rick, you have no idea how hard that is to do. How hard it is to entrust my children to the Lord. Actually, I do have an idea of how hard that is. It is very difficult. But let me offer you some encouragement. 2 Timothy 1.12 says, I know whom I have believed, and am convinced that he is able to guard that which I have entrusted to him until that day. You entrust something to God, and guess what? He is faithful to care for that. He is faithful to, to take care of that. Those of you who are not married, who are younger, who one day will have kids, will you remember this? Plant the seeds in your mind. The moment your son or daughter is born for the first time, start praying right then. And trust them to the Father in that moment and all the way up. Philippians 1.6 says, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Well, that's a side note for parents. But Abraham has this indication of his faith here. And I know it seems weird. His faith is descended to kick his son out. Yes, because God told him to. The Lord says, Abraham, do this. Do as your wife says. I know what I'm doing. 
you got to trust me in this. And by now, Abraham, we're starting to see him pick up steam in the faith engine. He's beginning to really believe, to really act on what God is telling him to do. And so he sends Ishmael and Hagar out with nothing but entrusting them to the Lord. There's a second reason why this story is here, why I believe God allowed things to go down with Ishmael and Hagar the way they did. And this is the one I want to focus on this morning. This is the one you want to dig into and listen closely. It's an illustration of our flesh. We see historically an indication of Abraham's faith, but practically it's an illustration of our flesh. For you see in scripture, the person of Ishmael is a picture of the flesh. What do you mean the flesh? Listen to this. Galatians 5.19 says, The deeds of the flesh are evident, which are, and I quote, immorality. Immorality is the word pornea, where we get our word pornography. It has to do with sexual immorality. Impurity, which is a word that means morally filthy. Sensuality, sexual lust. Idolatry, sorcery. That word sorcery is pharmakia, where we get our word pharmacy. And it's a connection between witchcraft and, and drugs. Pharmakia, sorcery. Enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions. Envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's the flesh. And Ishmael in the Bible is a picture, if you will, an allegory of the flesh. He was conceived in the flesh, not in faith, not in trusting God, but he was conceived in the flesh. Abraham and Sarah saying, you know, we've got to take matter into our own hands. We're told we're going to have a baby. We can't do it. Our bodies aren't up to it. So we've got to do something ourselves. And so they, in the flesh, make a decision. Ishmael was born of the flesh. It was a fleshly human solution. He was not God's plan. He was man's plan. Isaac, on the other hand, was conceived in the spirit by the power of of the Holy Spirit. Do you realize that? Isaac could not have been born by the power of Abraham and Sarah. It was impossible. God waited until it was impossible. We read before that Sarah was beyond the age. That Sarah had moved beyond. The change had happened in her life. She was way beyond childbearing years. Abraham couldn't do it either. That's very clear in Scripture. In Genesis chapter 21, going back in verse 1, it says, The Lord did for Sarah as He promised. The Lord made it happen. So Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time of which God had spoken to him. This was a miracle. Isaac was a miracle baby. You will see another miracle baby later in Scripture that Isaac is a picture of by the name of Jesus. But that's another message in a couple of weeks. Isaac. An illustration of the spirit. Ishmael. An illustration of the flesh. It's an amazing allegory. It's, it's a wonderful word picture. And Paul's going to draw it out. Flipping your Bibles to Galatians. Chapter 4. All the way over in the New Testament. The book of Galatians. Now as you're turning there. Consider this. Ishmael and Isaac are allegories for the flesh and the spirit. Now, some of you may say, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought you always said to take the Bible literally, not as an allegory, not metaphorically. And I have said that many times before. Always take Scripture literally, except when Scripture itself indicates otherwise. When the Bible itself says, hey, here's a picture for you. Here's an allegory. Here's a word picture. 
Historically, what happened is absolutely true. Practically, what happened, Paul calls an allegory. Galatians chapter 4, verse 22. Paul says, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman, that would be Hagar, and one by the free woman, that would be Sarah. The son by the bondwoman was according to the flesh. And the son by the free woman through the promise. And Paul says, this is allegorically speaking. So what he's saying here is, pay attention. Paul's about to do what Paul does so well, he's about to get really deep. And he says, I'm going to paint a picture for you. I'm going to use Ishmael and Isaac and Sarah and Hagar and paint you a picture so that you can understand what I'm talking about here. And he goes on. Verse 24, this is allegorically speaking. These women, Hagar and Sarah, are two covenants. One proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves, and she is Hagar. What's he talking about? Listen to this. When Hagar and Ishmael were driven out, they were driven into this region that was the region of Mount Sinai. That's where they wandered, right there. In fact, the Bible and and even history very closely links Hagar with Mount Sinai. And Paul here says Hagar is Mount Sinai. She's a picture of Mount Sinai. What do you mean, Paul? Because she's a slave. And Mount Sinai is about the law, and the children of the law were enslaved to the law. They were in bondage to something they could not keep. They couldn't keep God's righteous requirements. And so just like Hagar and Ishmael, the Jewish people were in bondage to the law that came down off of Mount Sinai. Are you with me? Read on. He says, one proceeding from Mount Sinai bearing children who are to be slaves, she is Hagar. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem where she is in slavery with her children. Paul, at this time of writing, is saying the present Jerusalem, the Jews, Israel, they are enslaved to a law, to fleshly works that will not gain them entrance into heaven. They can't do it. It's not going to happen. In another place, back to chapter earlier, Galatians 3.24, Paul said the law is our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after the faith has come, we are no longer under the schoolmaster. What do you mean? The Old Testament law, the whole reason God gave it was to help people see that they needed grace. It wasn't that by keeping it they could be saved. It was by, by trying to keep it that they realized they were condemned. They couldn't keep up. They could not possibly handle this law. So once they understood that, grace comes along and man goes, Oh, that's why Jesus had to die. That's why I need God's grace. Because I can't be good enough. The law was our schoolmaster. But folks, we're still, in the same way that Ishmael mocked Isaac, the flesh mocks the spiritual The Bible tells us that Jerusalem above, verse 26 of Galatians 4, the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. Paul's talking about the new Jerusalem, which is a gift from the Father, that we will dwell in one day in grace. Verse 27, for it's written, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For For more numerous are the children of the desolate than the one who has a husband. Verse 28, and you, brethren, you Christians, you, you people, listen, like Isaac, you're children of promise. But, as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so it is now also. The flesh 
persecutes the spirit. In the same way that Ishmael persecuted, mocked Isaac, the flesh mocks the spirit. Why is it people have a hard time coming to Christ? Sometimes it's simply because the flesh is mocking the spirit. Those Christians, come on, they're so self-righteous. Bunch of arrogant pigs. They think they've got grace. They think they've got God. They think they're right and we're wrong. Ooh. Mockery. The flesh mocking the spirit. And even in our spiritual lives, folks, Christians, isn't it interesting how the flesh mocks the spirit even in our own lives? We're singing and, and we're in the middle of a song and what our heart wants to do is just, man, we just want to throw our hands up and, and just launch ourselves into God. But we go, is everybody else doing that? Okay, then I can. Good, good. No one else is. Everybody's still arms down. You go, well, I better not because the flesh is saying, yeah, because you'll look like an idiot. Be careful. Don't get too spiritual unless other people are. It's going to come out. People are going to say, you're really spiritual. You're out there. The flesh mocks the spirit. And what does scripture say, Galatians 4.30? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of a bondwoman, but of the free woman. Ishmael, the flesh, is making life hard on Isaac, the spirit. And so Sarah, picture of grace here, surprisingly, says, get Ishmael out. Get him out. I don't want the flesh in my house. He is not an heir with the promised son. Skip down and look at verse 17 of chapter 5, right below there. Galatians 5:17. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. For these things are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. Listen, why do you sin in your life if you know who Jesus is? Because the flesh is at war with the spirit. This is a physical, this is a spiritual law. This law is, is, is as solid, folks, as gravity. Or the law of entropy. All these physical laws that we, we believe, we understand, we trust. We know the sun's going to come up in the morning. And as sure as that, the spiritual law is the flesh is at war with the spirit and will always be. That's why we struggle. That's why we're drawn to do things. And after we do them, we go, man, why do I keep sinning? Why can't I just have it together before the Lord? Why can't I just be perfect? Because the flesh is at war with the spirit, even in your Christian life. The flesh is at war with the spirit. It's open warfare. Now we're speaking allegorically and spiritually, so let's get practical. Flip in your Bibles back to Romans, a couple uh, books before this. Romans chapter 8. So important we understand this this morning. And this is huge in the way we live our lives, with practicality. Romans chapter 8, verse 5. You begin to wonder, what do I do about this? And the flesh and the spirit and this battle that I struggle with. How do I handle it? How do I live in the real world with this? Romans chapter 8, verse 5. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are, who are according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death. Listen to that. The mindset on the flesh is death. But the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. The flesh is death. The stuff of the flesh leads to death. The desires, the sinful nature leads to death. That's where you're headed if you're hanging on to the flesh. Even as Israel came off of Mount Sinai and began to hang on to her own works, the works of the flesh, it could only lead to death. 
taught the mindset on the spirit. Oh, that is life and peace. In fact, the stuff of the spirit leads to love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The fruit of the spirit listed in Galatians 5.22. That's the spirit. The flesh is death. And let me just ask you a question. Which do you prefer? What do you long for? Are you looking forward to death? Is that what you want? Do you want dissension and strife and envy? Do you want a life that is characterized by those things? That's the flesh. The spirit. Oh, it's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Do you, do you want joy or depression? Do you want to live a life of patience or despair? Of flesh or the spirit? Ishmael or Isaac? Gang, if I don't want to be dominated by the flesh, the question is, how do I go about the things of the spirit? And here's the deal. You have to start by casting Ishmael out. You have to start by casting out the flesh. How do I do that? Galatians chapter 6. Flip back over there. We're flipping this morning. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. Actually, let's start in verse 6. Galatians 6, 6. The one who has taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. So I'm available for lunch after service this morning. Anyone who wants to do that. Anyway, verse 7. Just wanted to share that verse. Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap from the flesh corruption. But the one who sows to his spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. This is huge. What happens when you plant fruit seeds? Seeds of an apple, seeds of a peach, seeds of a pear. What, what, what happens when you plant this stuff? It, it comes up and it bears sweet fruit. What would happen if you took a juicy porterhouse steak and planted it in the ground? What would you get? Go back and dig it up a week later, two weeks later, if you can stand the stench and the maggots. If you plant meat, if you plant the flesh... What you get is something that rots and stinks. In fact, the word here, when Paul says that he who reaps to his own flesh or sows to his own flesh will reap corruption, the word corruption literally means stink. Disgusting, smelly odor. I, I, have, I have personal experience with this. I love actually the Greek word. It's pathora. That's their word for stink. Oh, the pathora was unbelievable that day. I went away for Christmas. I was in college at the time, and uh, my roommate and I left a day early to head back down to California for Christmas vacation, three weeks gone. And when we got back, I was glad to kind of get back to the dorm, settle in, I had my, my bags, and I headed up to the third floor, and I got up there and down the hall. And as I went down the hall, something just wasn't right, didn't smell right. But the closer I got to my room, the worse it was. We got to the door, and we opened it, and it was a solid wall of stink. It was so bad. I, 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 we couldn't even go in the room at first. It was just awful. And finally, my roommate and I, we got into the room and we began looking around going, Oh, what is this? It was Abilene, Texas, 20 degrees with a wind chill factor of like 35. So it was below zero. And we had to open the window and it had to stay open for two weeks. 
just to try and get the stink out. We're buying nice smelly candles and spraying perfume and deodorizers and everything. Nothing was working. It took us a few days to figure out what was going on. We should have been smarter than this. But we realized when we walked in that our heater was blasting and had been blasting for three weeks. So we immediately turned it off, aired out the room, all that. Still just stunk. It just stunk. And every time we turned the heater on, it stunk again. And then we remembered J.T. Carney. J.T. Carney lived across the hall from me in college. I still owe J.T. big time. <laughs> J.T., the day after we had left for Christmas vacation, went to the dorm supervisor and said, Rick and Chris, they've left for, for vacation and my books, my homework is in their room. i got to get in the room. Can I borrow the key? Oh, sure, J.T., here are the keys. And up he goes to our room with a piece of liver. Oh. He took the liver and he placed it in our heater, closed it up, turned the heater on full blast, and locked the door. And three weeks later, that's what we came back to. Oh, oh. oh yeah. I know what it means for the flesh to stink. Now, don't miss this. Paul says if you sow to the flesh, if you plant and sow fleshly things in your life, it's going to stink. It is going to reek. And it's only going to get worse. It will get corrupt like a piece of meat planted in the ground. What kind of an idiot would try to plant a meat tree? Be dumb, stupid. You know what's going to happen. And yet we plant to the flesh all the time. All the time. Let me ask you, what would you prefer for lunch today? Some sweet fruit or some rotten meat? Oh, I'm sorry, let me get the maggot off there for you. Would you like a Coke to go with that? Now, I'm, I'm being kind of gross here, but hear this. Whatever seeds we plant in our lives will come up. Whatever we plant is going to come up in our lives. It will produce something. And if we plant to the flesh, it's going to produce this rotten, stinking meat. If we plant to the Spirit, it will produce the fruit of the Spirit, which are all these good things that we've read. It's a spiritual law. Plant a seed to the flesh, reap a harvest of spiritual corruption. Plant a seed in the Spirit, and you will reap spiritual fruit. Now listen, here's the kicker in this. What do I do? I've got to do what Abraham did that day. Two final things. Number one, I have to cast out the flesh. How do I do that? I have got to look at the Ishmael in my life, or the Ishmaels in my life, as we discussed a few weeks back. I've got to look at the Ishmaels and say, I will have nothing to do with them. See, what most of us do is with the little things in our lives, those little sticky things that we know probably wouldn't really please Jesus. Those things that we know God wouldn't really enjoy or, or be a part of. And, and we don't cast them out, we just kind of set them to the side. We keep them close by, like, like a romance novel on the side table by the bed at night like our love of, of certain movies like the type of music we listen to like maybe even some of the people that we hang around and we say okay I gotta cast out the flesh but I'm not gonna completely cast I'm gonna actually send Ishmael to a back home then I'm gonna plant in the backyard build there and, and it, that way at least Ishmael can be close Paul says no you have got to cast out the flesh you've got to look at Ishmael and say time to go how do I do that Romans 13 14 and look this verse up because this is the key verse. This is one to memorize and to have on your heart. Romans 13:14 begins by Paul saying, "Put on the Lord Jesus Christ." That's how you start. 
That's where it begins. Casting out the flesh is putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. In Romans 6, and I'll just read this to you. You don't have to flip there. Romans chapter 6, hang on. Paul says the following. He says, what should we say? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or don't you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we've been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so too we might walk in newness of life. You need to put on Jesus Christ. Paul says when you put on Christ... You are casting out the flesh. You are saying no to Ishmael. That's where it starts. Unfortunately, that's where a lot of Christian people stop. I put on Christ. And I show up to church every once in a while. And I keep my Bible at home. Dusted. I'm there. But Paul doesn't stop there. He says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and, what does he say? Make no provision for the flesh. What did Abraham do with Ishmael and Hagar? He sent them out without provision. He gave them nothing. He left them completely to the hands of the Lord. What we do in our lives that is such a huge mistake is that we try to live one foot in the world and one foot out. One foot with my petty sins and the other foot in grace. And we bounce back and forth and back and forth. We have cast Ishmael out by putting on Jesus. But you know what? We have not made no provisions. We're still providing for Ishmael. We're still doing things to allow Ishmael to be a part of what's going on in our lives. Folks, we have to stop feeding the flesh. Think for a moment. How do you feed the flesh in your life? Do you have a problem with alcohol? If you do, are you feeding the flesh by just keeping one six-pack in the house? Do you have a problem with certain kinds of language? Well, are you feeding the flesh just by the things you listen to on the radio, certain stations? Cast out the flesh, but make no provision for the flesh. Nowhere for the flesh to reside in your life. Because I don't know about you, but I'm not strong enough to keep the things of the flesh nearby. I'm not. They cause me to fall every single time. Now you may say, okay Rick, how does this jive with God's grace? And we were just talking about this last night, weren't we Larry? We're talking about the fact that we want it to be either or. It's either God's grace or it's my obedience. Guess what? It's both. It is a simultaneous thing. It is God's grace that saves me. But it is my obedience that responds to that salvation. There is salvation and there is transformation. And as we talked about on Wednesday night, the whole point of my living life on this earth right now, I get salvation the moment I accept Jesus, and then I'm spending my life doing two things, evangelization, telling people about it, and transformation, getting to know and becoming more like Jesus. Salvation and transformation. Romans 12.2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, I like me to a point. But I don't want to stay me. Because the moment that me is looking pretty good, you know what me does? 
you know what I do? Flesh stuff. The second I start really relying on my power to live a spiritual or a godly life, I do flesh stuff. I need to cast out the flesh. If we walk like Abraham, growing in faith, we are being daily transformed, changed, renewed, purified. And someone might say, don't you Christians ever get it right? Yeah, we do, when Jesus comes. When Jesus comes, because in that moment we will be pure as He is pure. We will be glorified as He is glorified. We'll be lifted up and we will be given eternal wonderful bodies and the flesh will have no say over us anymore. But until then, make no provision for the flesh. Father, this is hard teaching. I didn't even go into a list of things that each of us do in our lives. Whether it be off of the list in Galatians. Envy and slander. Sensuality. Dissension and strife. Father, there are so many different avenues that we can choose to sin in this world. So many seeds of the flesh that we can sow. And each one of us have to account to that before you. And I pray that this morning you would be convicting our hearts. As different as we all are and as different as the the sin temptations and influences in our lives are, Father, we all sin. And we all fall short of your glory. But I pray this morning you would give us the strength and the ability by your Spirit to make no provision for the flesh. To truly be people who are trying to walk after your Spirit. Filling our hearts and our minds and our thoughts with the things that are of the Spirit. And by doing so, Father, bless us and change us and transform us. In Jesus' name, amen. That transformation process, folks, is an evangelization process as well. People a lot of times will ask, how do I share Jesus with my friends? How do I evangelize the world around me? You do so by being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. Because the more Christ-like you are, the more the world will see that and want it. Or they'll dismiss it out of hand. But either way, it brings people to having to make a decision. I want to do one last thing before we get out of here. Would you all just stand up for a moment? And if you've got your Bibles, flip in in them to Psalm chapter 1. Paul talked in the allegory this morning of of Ishmael and Isaac and and he explained kind of this whole process and and it's, it's challenging teaching it's challenging reading to work through but I want us to be able to move beyond allegory I just want to give you one thing this morning that is guaranteed to help you plant the seeds of the spirit as opposed to the flesh what I'd like us to do is I'm going to read and if you'll just read out loud along with me Psalm 1 the entire psalm is just six verses Follow me and let's read this together and listen to what the psalmist writes. This is the key to walking in the Spirit. Psalm 1, verse 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, 
and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. What's he saying? Delight yourselves in the law of the Lord. You know what? Every now and then, as Steve mentioned to me before, I throw out little commercials about our midweek Bible study. And I want you to hear my heart on this. I don't... The number of people doesn't matter to me. If it's five people, we'll have the study. If it's 50 people, great. It's not about numbers. But I want to tell you a reality here, and anyone who is involved in going through the Bible study on a weekly basis, who is in the Word every week, knows this. It strengthens the spirit. It gives you the power and ability to handle and deal with and cast out the flesh. If you're trying to make it from one week to the next, again, this is not a matter of church attendance. Nobody's back there with a clipboard. Russ is not checking off names as people come in. That's up to you. If you want to be here, be here. Praise God that you choose to. But I want to invite you, challenge you, encourage you to be here on Wednesday night as well. Because what we talk about on Sunday mornings is a snapshot of the stuff that we get into on Wednesday nights. And it's God's Word. And God's Word is effectual, it's powerful, and it will give you the insights, the ability, the strength by His Spirit to live for the Spirit and not the flesh. That's so important, folks. You want practical? It's right here. And it will change your life. So I encourage you to trust it. I know we just prayed. I want to pray one more time. And let's do that and we'll let you out of here. Father, I know that there are people here this morning who haven't made a decision to do the first thing, to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Whether the Lord is to accept you as Lord and Savior and to ask you to come into their lives or to put you on in baptism. These two things are so vitally important. And again, I know, Father, there are those here who haven't made that decision. And I don't pray this to embarrass them or try to call them out. But God, we need some conviction in our lives. And I pray for that person or those people who have not made that decision, that they will see clearly and be convicted clearly of the difference between living by the Spirit and living by the flesh. Father, though it's hard, it's the truth. Help us to know that outside of Jesus, there is no salvation. That outside of Jesus, there is a judgment that's coming. And it will result in eternal loss unless a decision is made for Him. And so, Father, I pray right now for those who are here and need to give their lives to Jesus. I pray that they do so. And if you are that person, this morning will you pray in your heart after me. Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I have lived much of my life according to the flesh, but I don't want to anymore. Please, Jesus, take my heart and take my life and be my Lord. Forgive me of my sins. Forgive me of my wandering. And allow me, Lord, just to be your child. Usher me into your kingdom. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And if you prayed that prayer this morning, please come straight up and talk to me. And let's deal with where you have to go from there. But it's good stuff. It's not stinking meat. It's good for you. Have a great week. We'll see you later.